glad that you're here this morning. Hopefully you've been blessed uh, to worship with us already this morning. If you are a guest, I want to just say hello and welcome, so we're glad that you're here. And uh, Lord willing, up to this point, you've bumped into some friendly people and have experienced the love of Christ through others and through the singing of songs. We were able to commission a team to Madagascar already, so that's exciting. Great day already, and uh, we're blessed to have you with us if you are a guest. And we just ask you to do one thing. Uh, We want to serve you and bless you in any way that we can, but the one thing we ask you to do is if you would, in your worship program, this little card, we call it a connection card, if you wouldn't mind filling that out and taking it out to the first-time guest kiosk, which is the kiosk that's right outside the front doors. When you turn left as you're walking out the doors, it says first-time guest on it. If you turn in that card there, we've got a gift that we want to give you, and then we're also going to make a donation to a ministry because you turned that card in. So if you would please do that today, uh, that would be a blessing to us, to them, to everybody involved, and Lord willing, to you as well. And then also, if you're a regular attender, which, uh, do you know you become a regular attender after you've been here for three weeks in a row? So three weeks in a row, you're a regular attender. If you're a regular attender or a member, or maybe you were here six months ago and you decided to come back today, I guess you're a regular attender too. Um, all of you, just go ahead and take a look at the back of your bulletin. There's some different stuff on there. It's one of the primary ways that we'll communicate with our body as a whole. Different things that are coming up. There's a worship night coming up. Um, if you're not in a group, there's a thing that's starting that started this week. If you missed it this week, you can go next week. Called Group at a Glance. It's happening. We've got a marriage deal that's coming up. You can be watching for that in the days ahead. And a lunch coming up for one of our missionaries that's not in Madagascar, that's actually in Uganda, Julianne. And uh, you'll see that on there as well. And then what we're going to do today is we're going to continue in the Word uh, as we've been going through the book of Acts together in this series called Movement. And by movement, we defined it by saying that a movement is when a group of people come around a common belief. And for us, that belief is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should lead us to a life of radical obedience. And that's what the book of Acts is all about, how that started the roots for us as a church and and what it is that we should look like as a church. In fact, what all churches should look like with our mission and the way that we care for one another and all those things are found in the book of Acts. And we're going to continue through that today. We're in Acts chapter 6 today. Now, if you do the math real quick, it's May, and it's the fifth month, and we're in the sixth chapter, and we're going to go all the way through the book. There's 28 chapters. So even if you just started coming to Southbridge, you're really in at the ground level of this series, and uh, we'll be in it for a little while uh, together. And we're going to jump in this morning in Acts chapter 6 and 1 through 7, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll open the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, I thank you for friends and family and new people and folks that have been coming for a long time, folks have been around for about four or five weeks that are here. And uh, I come before you with all of them and myself, and I just ask you to speak to us through your word this morning. I ask that you'd meet with us as uh, we open the scriptures. I ask that you'd protect us um, from the enemy and any attacks there might be, any distractions that would come, and I pray that you'd remove sin for any that need to confess sin. I pray that that would even happen now, and that you'd just speak your truth into our hearts, into our lives, that you would transform us, uh, make us the men you desire for us to be. Make us the women you desire for us to be. Make us the young people, the students, the husbands, the wives, the teachers, the moms, uh, the uh, different people that you desire for us to be, God. Will you shape and mold, chisel away the stuff that doesn't look like your son, Jesus? And mold us into the, the image that you desire for us to be to bring you glory in this city and in this world as long as we're here. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I want you to think about your life for a moment and the different people you come into contact with and think about the needs that you see on a regular basis. So I'm not going to share with you a bunch of stats about needs in our city or you know, general vague generalities of things that could be said about different needs, but I want you to think about the needs that you see in your own life. So in your marriage, uh, with your children, uh, with your employees, with your boss, with your neighbors, with the barista you meet on a weekly basis, whoever the people are, think about the needs that you come into contact with. And, and I did this myself uh, as I was reflecting on the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. I was thinking about my own life. 
And uh, for those of you who don't know, I've got four little children at home that are seven and under. Those are like need machines, okay? Uh, they, they need everything. They need food. They need clothing. They need to be cleaned. They don't think they need to be cleaned. They need to be cleaned. Uh, they need to be taught. They need to be all kinds of stuff. Fixed when they're broken. They fall down and scrape their knee, all the other kind of stuff. And uh, the other night... <laughs> This is funny to me because it happened, but uh, my wife left me home alone with those four children, okay? It's kind of overwhelming when it's two on four, but when it's one on four, and she does it all the time, but she, when it's one on four, it's like, we, we want to survive. It's kind of one of the goals of what will take place. And we were together, and my wife went out with one of her friends, and they were hanging out together, and she had already made dinner. My goal was just to get them to eat it. And I don't know what your kids are like or were like or will be like, but I'll tell you what our kids are like, is they want to eat all the time except at dinner time. I don't know why this happens or what maybe we don't give them food all the time. You'd want them to get to that spot. And so my goal was to get them to eat their meal. And so I'm sitting there with these four little ones trying to get them to eat. And a little insight into me, I glance around the room and I see on top of the refrigerator, we've got a box of donuts. You can judge me if you want, but I am not above bribing my children. And so I tell the kids, listen, girls, if you eat all your food, I'll give you a donut for dessert. Isn't that like a total dad dessert, by the way? <laughs> if you want to judge me, I cut it in half, okay? And they cut the donut in half. I give the kids that. But what happened was through the meal, they don't all eat at the same pace, and so one gets done way before the other, and so she gets to pick her donut. Somebody else has to leave the room and go to the restroom. Somebody gets hurt. Somebody needs to be cleaned up. Baby needs to be put to bed. All kinds of needs are happening, right, during this meal. And so I'm in the other room. My oldest daughter comes in with her plate, and she says, Daddy, I finished my meal. Can I go have a donut now? I said, Yeah, you're old enough. You go pick your own. A couple minutes later, she comes back says, Daddy, my sister, who had already eaten her donut, felt the need to sample every one of the other donuts that were in the box, too. Taking little bites out of it, or little fingerprints. I went in there and checked it out. So there was a need for her to be disciplined at that moment. She did not agree with that need, that that was actually a necessity at that moment, but she had this need. Now, these are just physical needs. I'm talking all the kids, by the way. Did I mention there are four girls? We have emotional needs that need to be met in our home. We've got spiritual needs. They need to be prayed with. They need to be taught. They've got difficult questions. They need to be able to work through and have some freedom to talk about some of those, those questions that they've got to work about. And these are just my kids when I think about needs around my life. Think about the needs around your life and your family. Think about I'm married. So my, our marriage has needs. got intimacy needs. got communication needs. My wife has her own needs, and I've got my needs. And that's just our immediate family. And we've got friends, and we've got extended family, and they've got needs. And different people have financial needs, different people have illness needs, and there are mental illnesses, there are physical illnesses, there are people that can't pay their bills, there are people that just need some help paying their bills, there are difficulty in marriages, and, and think about the needs that are around. If you're on the prayer team at our church, our elders and staff and different people that volunteer for the prayer team to see the needs that get listed on our prayer requests every week, all kinds of needs mentioned, spiritual needs, people get questions, direction, physical needs, job needs, marriages that are falling apart, all kinds of stuff. So whether it's cancer or it's depression, it's all over the map. All kinds of needs. That's just our church. And think about our city. Just in Wake County, there are about a million people. Think about all the needs that are in our city. Not to mention Durham and Chatham County and all the other counties that are around. Orange County, all kinds of counties. There's a lot of people. And just we're talking about you know hundreds of people at our church, and we're talking about millions of people. And they all have the same needs, the physical needs and the emotional needs and the health needs, and the majority of them are headed for a Christless eternity. Talk about spiritual needs. And so I don't want to just be vague, though. I want to ask you to think about specific ones in your life that you come into contact with. So I'm thinking of a specific person, a specific name, a specific situation. And let me tell you the big idea of our message today before we even get to the text. It's that leaders lead when there's a neglected need. That's our big idea today. Leaders lead when there is a neglected need. 
And so when I ask you to think about a need, and we've talked about needs before, and we talked about, you know, yellow Jeeps. I mentioned yellow Jeeps to you, and all of a sudden you start seeing yellow Jeeps all over the place. People are telling me, sending me pictures, all kinds of stuff. And then we talk about needs, you'll start noticing needs all over the place. But I want to go further than just noticing needs. But see, leaders lead when there is a neglected need. So you know what the neglected need is, and that's the one. Whatever one got placed in your heart or in your mind or is doing so right now, I want you to think about that while we walk through this text today. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7 is that there was a neglected need, and the leader stepped up, and we're going to talk about what leadership looked like. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 here in just a moment. But up until Acts chapter 6, maybe you've noticed there's kind of an ebb and flow in the book of Acts in the early days of the church. And the ebb and flow is this, uh, that the church will start, something great happens, and then there's persecution. And something difficult happens, the church gets stronger. Difficult happens, church gets stronger. Difficult happens, church gets stronger. And so there's like this good, bad, good, bad thing that's happening. The church started in Acts 2. Peter preaches a message, 3,000 people come to Christ in chapter 2, verse 41. Then verse 47 God's adding to the number daily, those who are being saved. Everything's perfect. Everything's awesome. It's like um, utopia. You know, it's just amazing the things that are taking place, the way they're living together. Then in chapter 4, persecution comes from outside. You get told if you preach the gospel, you're not allowed to do that. It's against the law. We're going to arrest you. We're going to beat you. And they continue to do it. And the church continues to grow and continues to be stronger. Then in chapter 5, there's sin in the camp. So the next attack happens. It's a more deadly attack than just persecution from outside. With Ananias and Sapphira, and God shows, he, does, he takes sin seriously. Even in the life of believers, he takes sin seriously, and he deals with the sin, and the church gets stronger. And while many would not dare join them, the numbers grew. And numerically, they continued to grow, and the church continued to grow spiritually and continued to grow stronger. And then last week we saw, as Pastor Josh preached to us, and that powerful passage of Scripture where they're actually beaten for sharing their faith because they say, we're going to continue to do this. They do. And the other end keeps their bargain too. We're going to beat you. They talked about killing him, but they decided to beat him. And remember the apostles, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer with Christ. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, we'll see as the church continues to grow. But now we're going to see a problem that's the most dangerous one yet. It's an attack on the unity of the church. Look at it with me in Acts chapter 6, and verses 1 through 7. It says, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, and so they're continuing to grow numerically, it says the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. And so we've got a disunity issue happening here because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, a neglected need. So look at what the leaders do. Verse 2, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Verse 3, here's a solution. Though. Brothers, choose seven men from among them, you, uh, seven men from among you, who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, will turn this responsibility over to them, and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Miracle, by the way, <laughs> if you're new to church. Everybody was happy with this decision. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, all right, we're going to try this, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon from the Lion King, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch. All right. Thank you, Lord. Got me through them. A convert to Judaism. Uh, they presented these men to the apostles who then prayed for them, laid hands on them, gave their affirmation. These are the guys. These are the ones who are supposed to do it. And so the word of God spread. Uh, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so here you've got the churches growing at the beginning, verse 1, churches growing at the end. In the middle, there's this problem that could potentially stop the church, a potential church split, the very things that were the strength of the church. Remember in Acts chapter 4, 
was that they were one in heart and mind. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It was a supernatural unity. And why what was taking place? Acts chapter 4, verse 34. This is just two, a little bit over one chapter ago. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There were no needy among them. And then here we see we've got a problem between the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews, two racial differences, different cultures, different languages. And one feels like they're being neglected. There's a neglected need. And what do the leaders do? Well, they take leadership. And it's not just because they're the 12 apostles. See, oftentimes, and you'll see throughout Scripture, in this situation, they've got a position. Leadership isn't just about a position. A lot of times we think of leadership as a position or it's a role. It's what they do that shows leadership. And what they do is they take ownership and initiative out of the care for others for the sake of the gospel. That's what leadership is. And that's our definition of leadership today. It's when you serve by taking ownership and initiative because of your care for other people for the sake of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here. The advancement of the gospel of Jesus happening. Verse 1, verse 7, what happens? There's a need. It doesn't say whether the apostles are responsible or not, whether these women should be complaining, whether the Greeks should be upset, but they take ownership of that. And then they take initiative to make sure that that need is met. Why? Because they care for these people and for the sake of the gospel. And you see it throughout the scripture. I think in different leadership examples you see it. It's not just this one passage. Think about uh, the, probably the most famous Bible story. Uh, even if you don't know the Bible at all, if you've never heard the Bible, you know the analogy of David and Goliath. Think about what happens there. Long before David's ever a king, he's a shepherd boy. And there's a problem. Things are not as they should be. And so I ask you to think about the problem that you identify in your life, the need that's being neglected. Whether it's in your marriage, whether it's at your workplace, whether it's in your community, whether it's in your community group, whether it's in this church, whether it's in this city, whether it's around the world. Think about it. There's a problem for David, and what happens is there's this giant guy who's talking smack about his God. He's mocking his God and mocking his nation, and nobody's taking ownership of it. David didn't cause this problem, but you know what David does? He takes responsibility for it. He takes ownership of it, and he takes initiative to be part of the solution. You want to know the rest of the story? Read it yourself in the Old Testament. About Nehemiah. Keep going through the Old Testament. You get a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah lives in a palace. Living a life of luxury and a plush circumstances, hundreds of miles away from his hometown. Where there's people that are living in disgrace, and that city actually represents the reputation of his God, and so his God's reputation is on the line. And he could stay in his situation, and his life wouldn't change at all, and everything would be fine for him, but he takes ownership of a problem. Things are not as they should be. And he takes initiative to be part of the solution to this problem. That's leadership. Why? Because he cares for those people and the advancement of the reputation of the kingdom of God. That's leadership. And that's what we see these guys do here in this passage. And how does it happen? It's because they serve. And leaders serve. And that's our first point today. Leaders serve. I'm trying to imagine uh, being these apostles in this situation and trying to lead this church. I read different people this week talking about the state of the church and circumstances they were in and all those types of things. One guy said that there, there had to be at least 20,000 people at the church at this time. I read that and I thought, well, the text doesn't say 20,000. You don't see that anywhere in, in the Bible. In fact, what you see is they count the numbers for a while, and then eventually they just start saying that it keeps growing. This guy says that's because there became so many people they couldn't count them anymore. And so it was bigger than their system could handle. But he started thinking about it. Could it be 20,000 people? Well, there were 3,000 people. In Acts chapter four and verse, uh, or Acts chapter two and verse forty-one, and at the very beginning, and then in verse forty-seven, it said that God was adding to the number daily those who are being saved, one at a time. And then we get to Acts chapter four and verse four, and it says, uh, "But many who heard the message believed." And this is just one, you know a little bit later, about one chapter later, uh, they believed, and the number of men 
grew to about 5,000. That doesn't include women and children. And so we don't know how many singles there were, how many married, and the married couples, how many kids they had, and all that kind of stuff. But there could be 10,000, maybe 12,000 people at this point. And then the church kept growing. And you continue to read at chapter 5. After that Ananias and Sapphira situation, it said many people dared not join, but it says in verse 14 of Acts chapter 5, nevertheless, more and more men and women, both, believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And so now we don't have a number, but we know it's some you know, 10, 12,000 plus we're adding more. And then in our chapter today, in verse 1, chapter 6, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, and so it's a continual process of increasing, impacting the gospel spreading, more and more people are placing their faith in Jesus, joining the church, and becoming a part of this group. So the idea that there were 20,000 people, not that far off. But can you imagine a church of 20,000 people? It's a lot of people. I mean, there's some big churches in Raleigh-Durham, there are no churches that are 20,000 people. So try and fathom that for a moment. If you Just try and picture that crowd. If you've been to an NC State basketball game at the PNC Arena, and you look around one of the times when it's full, like when everybody's there, that's about 20,000 people. Or if you've been to a Hurricanes hockey game, uh, when that place is full, you see RBC Center, PNC Arena, that's 20,000 people. You've been to a Duke football game, that's a lot less than 20,000 people, Okay. That, that, so you get an idea of the crowd here. Just trying to put in perspective is all I'm doing here, Jim and Duke fans. I just, just want you to know, 20,000 people is a lot of people. Now, remember when they were meeting. Remember when this was. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. They couldn't even make an old-fashioned phone call to reach some of these people, much less text messaging and all this. Stuff. You know, the widow finds out she gets overlooked. She's not hopping on Twitter. Hey, John, hit me up. Need some juice and crackers. Pound something hungry. You know, whatever thing there. They can't do that. So what happens is there's a rumble. There's a rumble of dissension that starts happening. And it's about more than just food. Because we can look at this and see there's a food issue here. And you're saying that the the unity of the church is threatened. The early church that's growing like this with 20,000 people, people are getting saved, people are growing, people are being cared for, but there's somebody that's overlooked and could split the whole church. Yeah. It's bigger than just this food. Because these are the Grecian Jews. And so try and put yourself in their place. They only make up about 10 to 20% of the population in Jerusalem, so they're a minority. Oftentimes, minorities feel outcast or second-class citizens. Or they speak a different language. And so if, they're almost like refugees, if you've ever met any refugees. Now, they move here because Israel is a desirable place to live. Not just like Raleigh, Durham, it shows up in the you know, top five places to live. It was a retirement destination, but not just like Florida because it's got better, better weather. The reason why Jews from outside of Jerusalem would come and move to, to Jerusalem it was because there was a superstitious belief that God, when he raised people from the dead at the time of the resurrection, that the only people that would be raised from the dead would be raised from the ground of Israel. And so you move there because either, one, you didn't want to get buried somewhere else and roll really far, or because you would be stuck in the ground. And so you moved to this place, which meant also you didn't have any family around. So these widows, well, widows are always vulnerable. These widows are especially vulnerable because they don't have any family to care for them. And they feel outcast. They speak a different language. They come from a different culture. Some of their beliefs are slightly different, even though they were both Jews before they came to Christ. You see, the Hebraic Jews, uh, they took pride in it. It was was almost like a national pride or like a proud of your team type pride. It wasn't just necessarily an arrogance. It was was a good pride. And as Hebraic Jews, they came from the Hebraic, the Semitic um, line, the ancestral line, which would be like the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so they spoke Hebrew or they spoke Aramaic, the, the Semitic languages. And they thought that their religion was more pure because it didn't have any foreign influences. And then you bring these people that speak another language and have different customs and different culture. And so there was a, because of their healthy pride, there was a snobbish pride also that was wrong. And that happened before they 
new Christ. And so there's a tension here already. It's not the slightest offense. You can imagine if you're one of these Grecian widows, she got two loaves of bread, I got one. Uh, Another case of you're just overlooking me. And a victim mentality and uh, feeling outcast and feeling second rate. And it could cause a church split. And this can happen. And it's real stuff. Some of you have been through church splits. I'm sorry if that's happened. Um, I read about one this week, a real one. The church in Dallas ended up being in the newspaper. Um, And what happened was there were two factions in the church, and they got an argument about who should keep the building and the property in this situation. They got so upset about it that they took it to court. The court system said they weren't going to hear the case. They put it back to the denomination, had some denominational leaders get together and form church court, I guess you'd call it. That would be the show, right? And a church court they put, put together. And uh, the two sides came, they presented their cases, church court, you know, kind of worked through everybody's situation. They found out, they ended up ruling and deciding one group would get the church and the other one wouldn't. And uh, as they were going through the whole deal, they found out how this whole split started. You know how it started? Ironically, they were having a fellowship dinner. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? They were having a fellowship dinner, and uh, an elder got a smaller piece of ham than the kid that was sitting next to him. Obviously not a Jewish situation because they had a piece of ham, but they're not an exact parallel to this passage. But you look at that and you'd be like, how stupid is that? How ridiculous that, that a church would split over that. I mean, who's this elder? How, how moronic is this elder? And he should have never been an elder. And like, you could get mad and upset about all those circumstances, and some of that might be true. But when you realize people, and an obnoxious act is always a cry for help, no matter who it is in your life, whether it's an elder or whether it's your children or some coworker, these obnoxious acts are cries for help. They're oftentimes from neglected needs. But it's about more than just food. And the apostles, imagine the apostles in this situation. Do you remember our context? Do you remember what just happened in chapter 5? Pastor Josh preached about last week and talked about how these guys were, the Sanhedrin was debating whether they were going to kill him, decided, no, we won't kill him, we'll just flog him. And the flogging was the same flogging that Christ received before he went to the cross. And there's 39 lashes, because 40 lashes is considered death. It's the beating. Uh, Josh told us that when Jesus received it in the prophet Isaiah, they say that he didn't even look human as a result of receiving this beating. He would tear the flesh off of his back, tear the flesh off of their chest. Now Peter and John and Andrew have just had that beating. And can you imagine being them and then getting the memo? And, and some of these widows are upset because they didn't get their meal last Friday. Sorry, I was being beaten. Think about what they could have said. Uh, the, widow, the widows didn't get their meal. Their feelings are hurt. I have no flesh on my back, okay? I'm willing to die for our cause. And she's upset because she got one loaf of bread instead of two. Okay. It could have said, you know, I've been praying for you every day since you started coming to our church. I preach uh, the gospel to you. I'm the one that told you how to have this new life. I care for you. I love you. And you're upset because you didn't eat. But they don't say any of that. You know why? Because leaders serve. They had the same mentality as their master, as their Lord, as their leader, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but took the very form of a servant. And Philippians 2 tells us our attitude should be the same way. And their attitude was that way because they cared for these women. And so they took ownership of it. It didn't matter whose fault it was. It didn't matter if they were doing something else. It didn't matter if they were doing something that could be even deemed more important. They took ownership of the situation and initiative to make a solution because they cared for the people and the advancement of the gospel. They were leading, and leaders serve. Ultimate example, Jesus Christ. Think about him as a servant. And what many of us would be tempted to do, you talk about Jesus as a servant, is we run to a, the same passage every time, right? 
John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I think that can be a huge mistake to run to that passage. Great passage, teaches about servant leadership, totally get it. Let me tell you why it's a mistake. One reason is because we don't wash each other's feet, so it seems a little bit weird at first. But second reason is because it's such a narrow focus on what service is. And oftentimes when we talk about servant leadership, we think that it means just picking up trash in the parking lot, washing the toilet, doing some lowly task. And wasn't Jesus' whole life service? Think about everything that he did. And think about our definition of leadership. He comes from heaven to earth here. Why? Not because of a need we ha- he has, because of a need we have. And he takes initiative to solve that problem for us. And so when he says to religious people who are worn out from trying to live the Christian life, the Jewish life, the whatever life you want to call it, their religious life and their own strength, trying to keep all the rules, do all the right things, not do all the bad things, and he says to them, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Isn't that service? What about the beginning of his ministry? when he's tempted by Satan himself. Isn't that him serving us? Hebrews chapter 2 says it this way, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And so he was thinking about us. He was actually being tempted so that he could then sympathize and help us. He's serving us. Every part of his life was service. Think about when he confronted the Pharisees. Wasn't it service to them for him to say to the Pharisees, look, you're trying to do all this stuff? You don't get it. Isn't that service? You say you love God with all these actions? Your hearts aren't in it. That's service. The rich young ruler comes to him and paraphrase what he says to him. Essentially, you're not ready to follow me yet. That's service because he's thinking about the best interest of the person, the other person. But all you can use example after example. You know, he heals blind eyes. That's service. He heals leprosy. That's service. The ultimate example is Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. He says, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. What did the son of man do? He died for us before that, even though there was a problem that we had that we couldn't solve that wasn't his problem. It was your sin. It was my sin. And he took ownership of that problem. And then he took the initiative to come from heaven to earth. And no one took his life. He laid it down. Why? For God so loved the world because he cared for us. For the advancement of the gospel, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, to seek and save that which was lost. See, he's the ultimate example of servant leadership, and he's our Lord. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. Why do you have to give his life as a ransom for many, for many that would place their faith in him? The picture of the ransom language is it's like you and I were kidnapped into slavery, we're into bondage, and then the ransom note comes from our captor, our enemy, and you and I can't pay the debt, but he paid it. And when he rose from the dead, he offers you life and he offers me life. And the many that will place their faith in him receive the service that he's given. And you know what? When he died, he didn't die as a martyr. And he didn't die as an example. He didn't die as a philosopher. He died as your savior and as my savior. And it wasn't just so that we'd know what service looks like. It's so that we would be served. And that he dealt with our problem. That's leadership. Leaders serve. That's your Lord. And so the question is, will you serve? Will I serve? It's a question I have to ask myself. As I think about my life, will I serve my children? Will I serve my wife? Will I serve our church? Will I serve this city? Will I serve the staff at our church? And I think about our staff. Will I, will I actually look at problems and problems whether they have in personal life, whether it's with their ministry, whatever deal, and look at it and think what would be best for them and for the church as a whole and then take initiative to try and help solve that problem because I care for them and the advancement of the gospel. And will you do that with your kids? Will you do that with your marriage? Will you do it the one need that you have in your mind that God laid on your heart or is laying on your heart right now?
because leaders serve. Because leaders lead when there's neglected need. And that's what happens here in this passage. And so we ask ourselves the question corporately as a church. Do we do that as a church? And I think about that as us as a church. And I know that I can find stories of us serving. In fact, if you didn't see it, there was an article in the newspaper this week about our church. You can go on, on Google and pull up News and Observer and is in there. From our generosity challenge. And I don't know if you were here. The week after Easter, we had a service where at the end it challenged you uh, with different ways to be generous. You could come forward, grab an envelope, and in the envelope had different ideas of way you could bless people in the community. Well, the News Observer ran a story on that, and they tell some of the different things. And you can read multiple of them um, in that article, but there are different people did different stuff. There's one guy that somebody at his work uh, didn't have enough, hadn't gotten paid in several weeks and have enough money to even get home, gave him the money to get home. Somebody filled up somebody's gas tank and uh, blessed him, and then it was a family that had some financial need at that moment. He couldn't have known that walking up to them, so God orchestrated all that. It's awesome. Somebody prayed, the, prayed for their neighborhood, just went around and, and prayed for different people in the neighborhood. There was one guy that's actually a leader in our church. He leads our engaged groups, which are supposed to you know, bless different parts of our community. And uh, Tom McFadder, he told a story in the article about how somebody else in the church actually served him. And he said what happened was, he's unexpected, this guy washes his car and rotates his tires, and in the article he says, I don't even rotate my own tires. He said it was like a modern day, someone washed my feet. And how will they know that we are his disciples? Because we love one another. And we care for one another. I know we serve one another, and we serve our community. And you know what was neat for me was that day, when we did the envelope assignment, was just hearing how people do this so much without envelopes or without an assignment. I went to uh, Discovering Southbridge lunch. It's a lunch we do. Uh, periodically, about every other month, and uh, new people get to come. They get to hear about the church. I share the vision of the church, but we also ask some members of our church to come, so they don't just hear from you know the guy up front telling you what the church is like, but people that are um, coming and have been in their circumstances and experiencing it. One of our members was sharing a story, and uh, she started talking about how people do this all the time. She told a story I'd never heard before of a guy in our church who had somebody in a small group who had a need, so he mortgaged his own house so that he could help them meet their need. And so people serve. Yeah, I think we serve as a church as a whole. And find stories of service. But let me ask a big question. What if we stopped? Would our city notice? What if this church just stopped existing? Like if I said that, that was a fun run. Um, It's great. Southbridge is awesome. People got saved. Lives were changed. And um, we're not going to meet next week. We're done. Would Briar Creek know? Are we just the church that meets at the movie theater? And we do some nice things. Or, or would they be like, Where, what happened? Like, we needed them. They were meeting our needs. They were doing things that, that Christ would do if he were here. What about our city? I mean, we're just, you know, however many hundred people will show up today. And we've got millions of people in the triangle. Would they even know? I honestly don't know the answer. It's a great question for us to consider. I think we're in process. I think we're going in the right direction. Obviously, people are getting saved, and those things are happening. Are we caring for our city? Are we caring for one another? Are we willing to serve? But notice something else about this passage. The leaders didn't just serve. They also didn't do everything. They delegated some of this stuff because they know that great leaders don't just serve. They serve from their sweet spot. And that's our second point. Great leaders serve from their sweet spot. And you look at the passage and you see what happens here is they find out there's this problem. And it says, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you. And then he lists what these guys should be like. And you could blame these guys that they're being arrogant. Like, well, you're, you're, not, you're too good, Peter, to go deliver a meal to a widow? And it says in the passage here, it would not be right for him. 
to do this. It's not that he's being arrogant. It's that he knows what he's been called to do. That's his sweet spot. Think about sweet spots for a moment. I don't know if we've got any golfers here. I know there's a golf course across the street and some of that type of thing. Even if you're a weekend warrior or if you're, you're like me and you golf like once a year because somebody invites you to a scramble, you know that a golf club has a sweet spot, right? And if you don't, then you probably don't go back. The sweet spot's what keeps you coming back as a golfer. So when I, if I don't go on a scramble, you know, I might take 100, perhaps 120, who knows, uh, shots when I'm out there playing golf. And there's always one that makes you come back. It's that one shot that you, you, you're like, I, I can do this game. Forget the 119 other shots I just took. I can do this. And you hit a shot, and when you hit it, it's just right. It's because the manufacturers of the golf club design a club so that it has a sweet spot on it. It's, it's the way that it's supposed to make contact with the ball at that exact spot. And when you do, the ball goes straighter and it goes farther. You're not walking around through grass and getting all kinds of stuff. It's just not a mess. You're not hitting out of water. When you hit the ball in the sweet spot, it's just right. And the same thing's true if you play baseball. There's a spot on the bat. If you play tennis, there's a spot on the rocket, racket. It's called the sweet spot. Did you know that it's not just sporting goods that are designed that way? That you and I have a sweet spot? That we have a place where our creator, our manufacturer, our designer, you've been fearfully and wonderfully made, each one of you. And that there's a spot where you're supposed to make contact with this world, where your unique gifting, and every person who places their faith in Christ gets at least one spiritual gift, your unique gifting, your life experiences, your personality, your design, they all come together to the same spot. That's your sweet spot. And every one of us has that spot. Everyone who's placed their faith in Christ has a spiritual gift. Every one of us has unique experiences and training and preparation and life that have happened to bring us to a place. And as we bring those things together, the personality, the training, the experiences, the design, the gifting, we're supposed to use them. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Peter, Andrew, John, they realize this. And so they say this statement here. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together in verse 2 and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. Now, was Peter saying that it would be sin for him to take a meal to a widow's house? It's not, he's not saying that. He's not saying it was wrong for him. He's not saying he wouldn't do that. He's not saying that. But he, you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, all right, there's a problem. I got it. I'll, I'll just work harder. I'll keep preaching. I'll keep praying. I'll keep putting my life on the line. And I'm also going to serve all these meals. That would be arrogant. Because then he would think that it's on him to do everything. But instead, what he realizes as a great leader is he's got a unique calling. It would not be right, not for him to deliver a meal, but for him to neglect his calling. It would not be right for him to neglect the preaching of the word and prayer in order to do something that someone else has been gifted to do, someone else has been designed to do. Because jump down to verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. In other words, he was Greek. And you might not notice this, but all seven of those names are Greek names. Go back up to verse 1. Who was it that was having a problem? The Grecian Jews and their widows. Interesting then that it's a bunch of Greek men that are picked to, to solve the problem. To be a part of the solution so that they can then serve in their sweet spot. Because these are men that understand the culture. 
speak the language of these women, would better grasp the need, would perhaps think of their own mothers in this situation. And they've had unique experiences, unique training, and unique gifting to bring them to the point where they meet the need in a way that Peter wouldn't meet the need. That John, it wouldn't be the same. So that they can now serve in their sweet spot. Do you realize you have one? I have one. My wife was having lunch with uh, a young lady that's a member of our church, Julianne Null. And she used to be around here on a regular basis on the worship team. You see her in different spots. And now she's serving the Lord on, uh, on the mission field. And you see that lunch is coming up if you read the back of your worship program for her. And she was just over at our house, and they were chatting through stuff. And I said to Shanna, my wife, I said, do you remember when we had Julianne over at our house for dinner, and she was talking to us about her burden for Bolivia and her desire to be there? And Bolivia, from the time she was a little girl, she wanted to go to Bolivia. And she said, yeah, we talked about that. I said, oh, what would she say? Because now she doesn't serve in Bolivia, by the way. She serves in Uganda. If you're familiar with the, the map, the Bolivia is in South America. Uganda is the other side of the world. It's in Africa. And she said, well, she told me about when she wanted to go to Bolivia, she had this desire to be there. She wanted to tell these kids about Jesus, and, but she kept trying to force her way in, trying to figure out what she would do if she was there to do it. And then she started telling me about her ministry in Uganda. And how she served there as a nurse with her unique training to do that. And how she uses her photography skills, a desire, a passion that she has, something that's in her personality and her gifting. And she shares the love of Christ with these children, which is her longing and our mission. And she said in her exact statement about her ministry in Uganda is that I was made for this. Isn't that awesome? To be in the spot where you were made to be. You ever do anything in your life where you're like, this is what I was made to do. It's not that you can live there 100% of the time. It's not that Peter never delivered a meal to a widow's house. But he knew what he was called to do. He was supposed to be praying for these people, and he had unique experiences and training that everybody else there didn't have in three years, walking with Jesus in person, seeing him die, seeing him rise from the dead, one-on-one conversations, and unique gifting. He was to preach to God. We're all to be witnesses, but he had a unique gifting for the group that they had together, and he was going to serve in a sweet spot. What about you? What about me? Do we do that? Great leaders realize you don't just serve. You serve from your sweet spot. That's the best place you can be. And if you don't know what yours is, we try to offer resources as a church. One of the things we do is we have a tool uh, that we pay for, everybody that would go through it, called Assess Me. And uh, if you're interested in, in taking an Assess Me survey, it tells you what your personality is like, tells you some of your spiritual gifts. Um, if you can't remember all that, you're not good at using the website, it's on our website. Go to the Connections kiosk after the service today. Say, give me the orange card. That's all you've got to remember. Give me the orange card. And it says, Assess Me on there. It gives you the information so you can log in. Take one of the assess me situations, read about it, learn about yourself, and then maybe you still don't know what to do. Let me tell you what the work of a pastor is. It's me, that's our shepherding pastor, our executive pastor, our worship pastor, our youth pastor, different pastors that we have around the church. Ephesians chapter 4 says the work of the pastor, evangelist, teacher, prophet is to equip the body to do works of service. We'd love to talk with you about what your assess me says and walk with you through it and talk about where's your best spot to serve, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our community, whether it's in your small group, whether it's in the city, whether it's around the world. Where's your sweet spot? That's where you're supposed to be. But not just in your sweet spot. You serve from a place. You serve from overflowing. And that's our third point. One more observation from this text. Look at the uh, requirements of the guys that are picked to serve. In verse 3, it says, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And we're going to give the responsibility to them. Then jump down to verse 5, and it says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And we get a list of these other guys that come after that implied that they also were filled with faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom. And then we jump down to verse 8, and we'll talk about this more next week. But it says, now a man, Stephen, was full of God's grace and full of power. 
These are people that were serving from overflowing. They were full. Now people that just, he didn't say, Peter didn't say, hey, go pick some guys that have great potential. Go find the seven most talented guys you can find. Just find seven, just ask for a sign-up sheet. The first seven people to sign up, those are the guys. Not, he's not just looking for willing. He's not just looking for talent. He's not just looking for potential. He's looking for something that's already a reality in their lives. Before they go public with their ministry, what's already a reality in private. Men that are filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means the Spirit's the one that's guiding and directing their lives. You can tell that God's the one that's guiding and directing their life. Filled with wisdom. Do you know what it means to be full of wisdom? It means you, you know the Scriptures in such a way you can apply them to daily circumstances, not just recite verses back. They're, they're filled with power. They're not doing this in their own flesh. They've been enabled by the Holy Spirit to do this. They're filled with grace. Men that have experienced the grace of God in their own lives, and this grace then influences how they interact with other people. These are people that can serve then from overflowing because it's become a reality in private and now is able to be used in public. It's Howard Hendricks one time shared that you cannot impart what you do not possess. And so I ask you the question. You think about a need today, and we talk about a willingness to serve, and we talk about you serving with your gifting, but don't rush out and do that. If you're not serving from overflowing, what will happen is you'll start running and you'll burn out. And so I ask you the question, can you serve from overflowing? And so what's happening in your private life? That's really the question. Are you filled with the Spirit? Is He guiding you in your prayer time with just Him? When you go through the Scriptures with just Him? When you're alone with Him? Because stuff starts in private before it ever manifests itself in public. And that's true with sin and it's true with good stuff. And you think through the Scriptures, think of different leaders we see through the Scriptures. How about Moses? How can you talk about leadership and not at least mention Moses, right? The guy leads two million people, a nation, out of bondage, confronts the most powerful man in the world, says, you know, says plagues over, over a whole nation of people, does battle with magicians. Before any of that stuff happens, before any of these miracles are performed, before he puts a staff in the Red Sea, do you know what happened with Moses? It happened in private with just him and God. First miracle Moses ever does. You know who's there? Moses and God. See that staff in your hand, Moses? Throw it down on the ground. It turns into a snake. First miracle. And then you know what God says to Moses? Pick up that snake by the tail. <laughs> I'm not a farm boy, okay? I know you don't pick up a snake by the tail. But God told him to do it. And so Moses, are you going to trust me in private before I ever ask you to trust me in public? Moses, put your hand in your, in your cloak and pull it back out. It's leprous. Put it back in. Pull it back out. It's not. You know, what was that like? Or take some water out of the Nile. We're going to turn it to blood. It all happened in private before it ever happened in public. So before Moses ever speaks boldly to Pharaoh in public, he learned how to communicate with God in private. Before he ever steps out for a nation and says, we're going to take a step of faith together for a nation, he's taking steps of faith privately with just he and the Lord. Because what happens in private then manifests itself in public. And keep going through the Old Testament. You don't just have to pick Moses. There's multiple guys. Pick Gideon. How about Gideon? Here's a guy who has a battle, and God tells him, you have too many men. He's already outnumbered. You have too many guys. And so he whittles his army down to 300 and says, now you can go battle that army of 120,000. How did Gideon get to the place where he was ready to do that? Back up in the story. You know the fleece story? Do you know who was there for the fleece story? Gideon and God. That's it. Happens in private before it starts happening in public. Nehemiah, we already mentioned him in this message. Here's a guy that gets a burden and a vision for a group of people. He's never even been to this place. He didn't live there. He's hundreds of miles away. Do you know when the vision comes? Do you know when the burden comes? It's when he's praying and fasting in Nehemiah chapter 1. 
happens in private before it manifests itself in public. And how about Jesus? Before he picks these 12 guys, he spends a whole night in prayer. They want to make him king by force. He goes off by himself after that. Before he goes to the cross, you know where the battle's done? It's in the garden, in prayer. Let this cup pass. If there's any other way, sweats drops of blood. There's power that takes place in that private spot. And so Peter tells him, pick guys that have already been there. And not based on their potential, they might be there someday, and they've got some great characteristics. They're willing. They've got talent. Pick guys that have power. They're full of power. Pick guys that have grace. They're full of grace. They've experienced it. They know what it is to be broken. Pick guys that are full of the Spirit because they've tried to lead their lives on their own. They realize where that ends, and now they've submitted their life to the Spirit. Pick people that are full of wisdom. They don't just know verses of the Bible. They've applied them to their own lives. And so when they come into contact with other people, they know how to apply the Scripture to their lives. There's people that have been in the private before they go public. And so you have to ask yourself before you go, yeah, there's this need. I'm going to rush out. I'm going to do it. How's your relationship with God? And this really is a love question, by the way. I'm not asking you to read the Bible this morning before you came to church. I'm not asking if you read the Bible this year. You know, you read the Bible once a year, every year, or a verse a day at least keeps the devil away or whatever things you've thought that you needed to do. I'm asking, do you meditate on the Scriptures? Do you even know what I mean when I say meditate on the Scriptures? I'm not talking about some new age thing here. I mean, like, do you chew on the Scripture? Do you, do you let the Scriptures become part of you? Like, not just memorizing them so you can give a presentation or do something, but another Howard Hendricks quote. I remember I told my wife last night we were talking about this. I remember one time when he said to me, I don't care how many times you've been through the Bible, I want to know how many times the Bible's been through you. That's what I mean when I'm talking about meditation. You'd sit with the Word. And you take the truths of Scripture. Think about what Jad shared earlier, that he's slow to anger, abounding in love. What does that mean for me? Before you ever share it with somebody else. In prayer, and you spend time in prayer, there's, there's a powerful thing that happens in prayer. And by prayer, I don't just mean, I pray for them, you know, get Julianne and the, you know, the other missionaries and make sure you be with them, some general thing that you just throw out there, and also heal this disease and help me at work today. So you got to go. It's, it's, I'm talking about, God, what do you want to speak to me? You ever just sit in his presence? There's those times in the private where he speaks to you, oftentimes in the crisis and the tragedy when you need him and you long for him and you realize, I can't just do this on my own, you start stopping. And being there. And that's where he fills you up. So you can overflow. So you got something to actually give. See, great leaders serve from overflowing. Great leaders serve from their sweet spot. Great leaders are willing to serve. Because they're willing to take ownership of a problem. Whether they created the problem or not. And become part of the solution. Why? Because they love other people. Why would we love other people? Because we love God. You can't say that you love God if you don't love other people. John tells us we're liars if we do that. And so really we're asking a love question. It's like with my kids. Uh, they've got these four little girls, right? And they've got all these different things. They think I'm the best, which is awesome. We're going to let them stay at that stage as long as they can. And you know what they love to do? They love to be with me. Whether it's I just hold them, whether it's we cuddle on the couch, it's because they want to get my attention. And with four of them, they want, you know, when they get that moment where it's just us, just one-on-one, they want that. And you know what happens? It's like they have these little love tanks and it fills their tanks up and it totally changes them for the rest of the day. So if I'll just like linger with one of them rather than rushing out to do yard work or rushing to the office or whatever, if I just linger with one sometimes, it can totally change their day. And the question is, do we want that with our Father? Do we want that with God? Because He fills us up to overflowing so that we can serve out of a care for other people for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. 
Leaders lead when there's neglected need. What's the need? Let's pray.